in our exciting episode of Serverless Sorcery. I'm your host, Rinaldi, and today we've got a treat for all you serverless enthusiasts out there. We're diving deep into this magic and mysteries of generative AI and serverless architectures, and this week, we're going to be talking on how CDK infrastructure as code can be enriched with AI. And who better to guide us on this journey than our esteemed guest for today, Boyan Zivik. Boyan is an AWS ambassador and serverless community builder with a love for all things CDK and serverless, and we're absolutely thrilled to have him with us. So without further ado, let's get started and unravel the enchantment behind serverless. Oh, Boyan, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Um, good to see the community still alive and especially uh, in the serverless realm. Definitely. But yeah, it's really great to have you. And I mean, I, you know, I've been following your what you've been doing in as well. And recently you just got back from uh, South by Southwest. Yeah, that must be exciting. Yeah, thanks, man. It's um, it's the first time I've actually spoken, first of all, in a forum like South by Southwest, but on a bit of a meta topic as well. Usually it's tech, it's uh, jumping into best practices and that sort of stuff. But once you get into the, I would say, the meta realm of, you know, pixelated paths and diverging through what you should do in your tech careers, it gets a little interesting because everyone's got an opinion. And you know what? It was great to be part of the panel. So really felt honored to be there. Definitely. I feel the same way too. I feel these kinds of things need to also be more talked about as well, aside from the technical side of things too. So I completely agree hundred percent. Now, Boyan, we're, uh, we have a very interesting topic today to talk about. And I think, yeah, pretty much it was brought up by you as well in regarding to how you're using CDK and infrastructure as code as well. But really, I feel we can more or less kickstart this whole discussion as well by, I feel, in general, setting the stage. And I feel what what better way to stay at stage than more or less kind of like a good understanding about generative AI. So I believe that one of the things you're currently using in is a Bedrock right now, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. So um, Bedrock has been our playing ground and testing ground. And because obviously Gen AI is still the current hot button topic of the year and probably will be going into next year, um, we've really been playing with the APIs that AWS actually kind of gives us. We've quickly discovered that there is a nice pairing between serverless and Gen AI, which we'll get into a little bit later on. But um, without giving away too much of the secret sauce just yet, just be conscious that with Bedrock, it's not just one model, which is awesome. You've got such a big playground to play with. Definitely. Which models have you played around so far with out of the models they've um, put out? So I've tried the text and image models, um, mainly because the text model was the one I could actually build through on a serverless API I was building for my own sake. Just wanted to see how we could actually offer value to our clients if they ever requested it. Typically, they were found that right now it's a great tool to you know build a bunch of um, question bots, chat bots, and such as I think every Tom, Dick, and Harriet in between is building. Um, the image model is one for my personal play. I, I decided, hey, um, create me an image for a presentation I'm about to give. Give me a serverless landscape. And then it would actually give you back a path to an image that's actually generated. Um, so far, so good. Um, I feel that personally, I have yet to dive to full depth of it because I think I need to establish a use case. So right now, what I've been doing is um, taking the same approach most IT professionals do. It's seeing what everyone else does out there and seeing how much time I can commit to trying to do something the same. Excellent, excellent. Yeah, it's definitely, I feel, an um, experimental field for a lot of us. I mean, and I'm sure a lot of people listening to this podcast as well will be feeling the same way too. It's a lot of new understanding, a lot of new ground, and in general, just trying to find out what works best for them, I feel, from these models. And 
pretty much I feel one of the things that has been talked about more or less is I feel like the challenges that goes behind generative AI. Personally, on your side, what have you found to be more or less the challenges you say kind of, that you are facing from this? Well, it hasn't been the models, you know, Anthropic has been fine. Uh, Metas and Stability AI has been perfectly fine. Again, each one will provide a value once you find a use case for it. The challenge really has come down to what do you plan to build with Gen AI? So finding good use cases for it from besides the perspective of we need to build a startup. So let's be as valuable as possible. Let's call it an AI startup. What we've found um, particularly successful has been trying to use Gen AI for the software sense, in particular for things like documentation, for logging and such. Trying to see through, I would say, sheer brute force at this point, how we can actually utilize LLMs. And one of the demos that we actually built out um, internally, and this was just for a bit of a playground, we had a day to basically go through and do a POC for the sake of doing a POC. And what we built was a quick uh, log ingestion LLM. Use Langchain as the interpreting tool, and then just kept firing off requests. Um, we found that it is a great tool to pick up and read logs. Like I'm talking LA, any LLM, so you could just use, for example, Anthropic for this. Um, but the hallucinations always worried me. Because right. what if it deciphered the logs in a different manner that you've described <laughs> to it, and it wasn't too stringent, you haven't set enough guardrails, and it gives you a completely different error. This is where that human aspect is still going to be present in that. 100%. I do feel so as well in my own experimentations as well. Hallucination, I feel, is a thing that is pretty much the main reason I feel why the human intervention will always be needed, I feel, at some point until we can actually start improving our models better. So it's definitely something I can relate to. And I feel like it's present pretty much. It's the main, I feel like, challenge that a lot of AI models currently face. Mm. And what, what, what have you done more or less to try to balance this a bit? When it comes to excuse me, hallucination <laughs> side, and mind you, dear listeners, is my third language, so let's take it back a bit here. Um, to stop AI from hallucinating, obviously from our side, um, we have to empower our users to be more conscious that you're dealing with either um, someone who's confidently wrong or someone who may be right all the time, but this may be the off chance where they are wrong. So it's really a ways of working that you have to adapt. And I'll get into a little bit more details on that. Treating AI as a bit of a co-programmer. So rather than being a single individual, if you are using a chat-based LLM, or if you are using um, something like Code Whisperer, you are effectively 1.5 of a dev. And that's how we kind of put it. You know, Just because you're working with somebody else doesn't mean they can be intrinsically wrong. And that's the same way we've approached LLMs as well. They're not intrinsically right either. They get the information from somewhere. You can imagine that you could be malicious and create an absolutely wrong LLM, right? Where you fed it nothing but wrong data and it'll always give you the wrong answer. So, you know, the human, the human cognizance has to be present throughout the whole process. 100%. And I feel it continue to be an important thing too, I feel. So that, that's a very good point. Let's shift our gears a bit and move into more or less the heart of the topic, which is basically on your implementations with Terraform and CDK as well. So do you want to more or less talk a bit about how you're currently doing it and more or less like what you're currently working with right now and how it's being applied with Gen AI as well? This is the fun stuff. This is the passion topic for me. So quick rundown of what CDK is before we kind of continue. Um, when infrastructure as code came about, we initially had 
CloudFormation was one of the earlier, shall we say, uh, foundation infrastructure as codes that was available. Using JSON and then later on YAML, you were able to build out AWS infrastructure and keep effectively a config of what you've created. The problem is over the years, um, although the ability of what you can do with CloudFormation has improved, i.e. which resources you can deploy, the fact is still at the end of the day, that template that you create can generate to thousands upon thousands upon whatever limit that AWS has, thousands of lines of JSON and YAML. And it's terrible to read. It's frustrating. CDK was brought in about 2019. Um, and what it did, it allowed you to pick your language of choice. And this is of the language of choices rather that AWS gave you of either um, JavaScript, TypeScript, Python, Java, don't write Java, uh, and uh, later on Go and C Sharp. And what it basically gave you is a, um, a framework or abstraction layer on top of CloudFormation where with very minimum code, actual code, so we're talking, you know, declaring constants, declaring variables, using interfaces to generate and create infrastructure as code. So it was quite limited. As in, sorry, not quite limited. It brought in a small amount of code doing quite a lot. It effectively, from the code that you created, you generated CloudFormation from it. So you didn't have to care about what CloudFormation was. CloudFormation was treated more like an API call, while the code is what you cared about. Terraform, on the other hand, um, is HashiCorp's implementation of infrastructure as code. It's direct API calls um, made through their own um, domain-specific language, uh, HCL, um, and it works perfectly fine. However, I'm a big fan of CDK because CDK, your developers and your infrastructure people, or rather just everyone speaks the same language. Moving on to where we started using Gen AI, and I know this is the main hot topic. So you can envision that when you are using Gen AI for programming, or rather when you're using a code programmer, like for example, Copilot, or in our case where we used Code Whisperer, um, definitely some benefits can be had. And first of all um, is understanding that you've got a tool built into your IDE, or even in the case of your terminal, I believe there's the Codium AI that can actually work with your uh, terminal. So if you're a VMAX user or Emacs, sorry, user or Vim user, you know, you're not alone. There are definitely AIs for you there. Um, and it helped either through the order completion process or help building of um, the actual serverless process. So I'll give an example um, for pocking, rather than lying on chat GPT or relying rather um, in line, you can basically say, create me an API uh, in CDK that has an API gateway and a quick Lambda function. It will spit out the code. Obviously you as the individual has to go in and ensure that it works and it's in line and you're basically good to go from there. Otherwise you may actually call within your CDK. Um, once you have your code risk co-programmer with you, you can basically say, uh, give me a method to do X and it can actually help you build those. Just be conscious just because it's on your IDE and not a chat GPT like bot, it can still hallucinate. So you need to be conscious of what you're actually trying to achieve. And we quickly found that out as we kind of went along that journey. Right. It's really great that you brought up code assistance because I feel that's what a lot of generative AI has been currently used for. And also pretty much people have been exploring many different tools such as like, like you mentioned, Copilot and Code Whisperer, but more or less, how, how close do you think so far it is to being able to emulate a new developer essentially? Like how, how more or less uh, are you more trying, how, how are you finding the balance right now? Like when you actually try to use Code Whisper and Copilot and actually work with it and more or less be able to be sure to provide the right input essentially to be able to get it to give you the right stuff? That's a, that's a dangerous question because what is right in choosing code 
before we kind of continue answering the question, just to add a, I would say a bit of a warning to that answer that I'm about to give. I have a fear that Copilot and the likes may actually cause a way of programming that's effectively standardized, not in the sense of standardizes in the best way or best practices, but to achieve X, this is the way that people will do it because based upon the, uh, uh, the co-programmer giving you the one answer, as we both know that, you know, in the development process, there's many ways to skin a cat and apologies for the cat lovers out there. Just the saying, um, we may actually be eliminating how much of that we actually do. The creativity side may actually be lost. Uh, going back on your question is, um, and I believe you were actually saying, it's like, how do we find it as potentially a replacement for developers, right? Or in a sense of how can it, I would say, become a developer on its own. It It's a bit of a loaded question because it can provide you the tools, but it can't execute them. It can build, it can give you what it believes that is right, but it has no form of checking. That lack of validation, which I believe some um, LLM creators in, in the not in the future, currently are working on, is probably the hardest bit. And when we treat everything like an API, it isn't too difficult to try to do. You could imagine that ChatGPT, for example, if you were to type up, execute this code for me, either it would need some sort of you know, container or um, an API that it needs to pass a bit of script to, to actually test and validate back if it's worked or not. The problem is that it's not sentient. As much as we use the terminology of AI, we're actually at a point where we're building out fantastic tooling. We're not actually creating AI. We came to the point where AI was so ubiquitously, ubiquitously used that we had to create a new term, or rather new to the general public term, AGI, generative intelligence, which this isn't. So effectively, in a weird way, the current thing that we call AI is like a brute forcing of what we assume artificial intelligence to be. Well, that's, that's not saying that it's bad. We have found that you're enhancing the developer, you're not getting rid of them. This goes back to what I said earlier, it's a 1.5. Um, I now have to do less to achieve more. The next steps would be like, for example, what Amazon is doing now, which is giving you a privatized um, LLM. So Amazon released a preview of their Code Whisperer, a particular service of the Code Whisperer that actually allows you to go through and allow Code Whisperer to only scan specific repos in your GitHub organization or your Git repos, not specifically just GitHub organization. And it then will build its knowledge set and its way of working and coding based upon how you already do things. You could imagine one of the more difficult things that employers face and really anyone faces that initial onboarding process and with development side or even infrastructure as code side. So let's bring in DevOps for a second here. There's a way that everybody will do their infrastructure as code, right? For better or for worse, whether it be using additional tooling around it, or whether it be using very specific naming conventions, a lot of that can be lost when you're first onboarding. I have a strong belief, and only because I've seen this firsthand so far, that when you bring in a co-programmer with proper, shall we say, learning models built into it for things like their way of developing code and such, you allow uh, that onboarding time to shrink because you're going to be right straight off the bat or look like you are closer to right. So there is that learning pathway that gets reduced with AI. I feel like as a tool, it's going to be fantastic. But again, to that point, it's not going to be replacing anything anytime soon. That's great to hear. I do feel as well, personally, that it's definitely a hard thing, I feel, for AI to be able to 
completely be a replacement for what you do day by day. So I suppose really, I feel it's more or less what people can do to really try to have them instead be as supportive coding partners that really more or less make your and streamline your processes particularly when you actually go through the development process. So that's a, that's a great, I feel like solution towards that and more or less kind of like a look at that. And I do feel as well, particularly that it is certainly an interesting thing as well that you mentioned about AGI too, because I feel like that it's, it's certainly a word, a term that has been thrown a lot pretty much ever since the, the, the dawn of, um, Generative AI, particularly, people have been saying like, "Oh, like you know, are we actually going to go towards AGI?" And there's a lot of debate about that. But yeah, I don't think we'll get into that. Which is, I think, it's it's a very interesting thing. I feel like how people particularly define AGI and actually try to more or less define if we actually are going to it or not. And I think that's a a subject of a big debate pretty much, but I think it's certainly pretty much, it's good to focus, I feel, on how we can particularly make them into great coding partners instead and look at it that way instead, essentially. And yeah, on your point of standardization as well, I do feel that it's it, it's it's pretty much a, one of the things that I noticed about AI is you more or less recognize a pattern more or less to how it is able to approach things. and. I think that's certainly what, yeah, I, I, I respect your fears as well, particularly because it does eliminate that degree of uh, individuality and degree of what you're cur- what you actually are based on when you actually create code. So I feel it's completely a thing that should be, I feel like feared as well. But at the same time, I do feel it's certainly something that is not too, it's something that's certainly not too uh, easy to solve as well, that degree of standardization. I feel like the, mo- the the main solution people are coming up with is particularly trying to actually do fine tuning towards their particular solutions. But regardless, it's certainly, I feel, a, a quite a hard thing to do as well, regardless of that as well, to eliminate that completely too. Absolutely. And I think it's just whatever can help. I mean, we imagined um, in the bad old days, and for those that are above the age of 30, maybe they can remember this, when updating a server meant SSHing in and pulling the latest copies. Instead, um, now we have pipelines that executed, agents that will build you uh, build for it, and containers we push out. AI kind of in that sense that what we use it for is that next, I'd say, step of improvement, where we now, again, to do more, we do less. Hundred percent, and you did mention more or less how you're particularly using it in DevOps as well. Do you have anything to share as well, particularly about particularly in regards to like Terraform and like yeah, like CDK as well, and how you've been using that aside from what you've mentioned as well on Gen AI too, and like how it's been more or less streamlining your DevOps process too. Well, absolutely. Well, look, I'll caveat it first that um, the co-pairing tool is fantastic, but regulations may block us from using it. And um, a lot of consultancies have seen us in the past as well. In the past, I mean, for us, when we're talking Gen AI, it's the last six months or so, right? Um, It's that big enterprise may, or enterprises for that matter, very conscious of speaking home or anything that is actually speaking home. So we've actually seen a bit of hesitance from um, some of the big enterprises, not to name any names, to use um, Code Whisperer and Copilot and the like. So that has kind of hindered some of our projects, but in the projects where we can use it, we've seen a massive help. And the one I can immediately put forward to you is um, 
that blurred line that is DevOps that effectively means you're an operations person that can develop or, or you're a developer that's part of operations in a sense, the merging of those two worlds. When you are tasked for proofs of concept, for example, I'm a bit of a back-end engineer myself. Um, I played with quite a lot of, um, what do you call it, languages that are particularly heavily back-end focused, but that's where I started. Started with C++, didn't like it. Had to work on Java, definitely didn't like it. And then I found my love with Python, which funnily enough is the slowest of all three. But nonetheless, um, when I was in a recent um, uh, project uh, where I had to do a bit of front-end, I had to do a bit of React to help create a SPA. Didn't know much React. Co-programmer kind of came in. Um, I had to look up a few things and even chat GPT a few things. Did not copy-paste, just want to preface. <laughs> Looked at a good reference point. Um, and what we quickly found is that building out these proofs of concept using um, AI was a fantastic tool because you do a lot of that inside of that DevOps realm. Maybe less so in SRE, but again, those terms, depending on which employer you're at, they typically, you know, about the same depending on who you are. But nonetheless, um, it helped build that POC relatively quicker than I thought. And, and during that time period, it was like an accelerated learning process. We found that Code Whisperer or Copilot, and again, just depends on who you are and what you're using, they're great tools to help you build your uh, knowledge set. And as well as for one thing that we all don't like doing, documentation. Like, I'm sorry, but I will try to do my best, but if I forget it, I forget it. And I will always try to backtrack and make sure we deliver everything perfectly documented. When you don't and you are doing inline documentation, wow, is Code Whisperer and uh, Copilot good at this specific thing? So in line, we've basically made it so if we don't like a particular thing or someone hasn't given enough details, we go, all right, comment in, description, and let the code programmer give you the description, right? So Code Whisperer has had its times where it's described something and I'm like, not quite right, but it's given me a good place to start off with. Same with Copilot. But what we found though is that because we've actually done it in that fashion, People's innate response was, all right, if it's just backslash, backslash, or, you know, hash, hash, I can easily kind of help get that description quicker. It builds good muscle memory for developers to actually comment in what they're actually doing and working on. As well as you can imagine when we've adopted projects in the past and we've been allowed to use co-programmers and allowed by the sense of we'll let our customers know, hey, when we're working, we're using XYZ. Are you okay with that? Specifically because of the ability of some of these co-programmers to call home or to contact the internet to give you a, um, a sample, right? There's always the worry that is Big Brother watching. Anyway, um, with some of our junior developers, um, we found that when they wanted to understand what a function is doing, if it's a bit intricate, the co-programmer will actually try to give a description as close as accurate to what that function is trying to execute or what that particular snippet is. And that helps fill the gap relatively quickly. It's like having a translator available at all times. I mean, you know, we've all... Um, been in a situation where if we knew a language a little better than let's just say you've come from a java world and you moved into um the python world you may not be relating one-to-one -one. the co-programmer could fix that or even in, um if you've ever traveled i mean if I've, I've been to a couple of countries in europe where i would i'd love to have a translator available there and then even if they're you know 60 percent correct 100 i mean i totally also echo the sentiment you have about documentation as well i mean I probably won't say I will speak for all devs, but I think most of us <laughs> can say we're, we're not exactly the biggest fan of documentation. But yes, I mean, after I encountered pretty much the capabilities of Generate AI, I've always more or less been also amazed by how good it's able to be 
done particularly from Generative AI. Like since I started playing with, for example, the GPT models, and recently also like seeing how Bedrock's some of Bedrock's models are also able to do that too, particularly towards your code. It's just fascinating, and it's just more or less making a lot of devs' lives easier as well. Directly, just yeah, being able to describe yeah what the function does, and that does a lot. I feel especially when we yeah just you know want to go through developing code without actually having to think too much about yeah actually kind of like putting that through. So hundred percent on that, and yeah, in general, that really does a lot of good for the code base too. I want to backtrack a bit and more or less also because you mentioned as well particularly about fears of enterprise as well uh, many enterprises as well towards like the different kinds of uh, things that gen ai is doing as well I, I i wanted to more or less know your thoughts as well like how do you feel this is going to pan out towards the future do you think there's more or less going to be more regulations being put on this do you feel like it's definitely going to be a, a bigger thing or it will have to the regulation may not come from a government level but it may actually be per enterprise and company level in the early days of Copilot, um, there was a very popular post on Reddit and Y Combinator for that matter, where someone had actually attempted to um, create me an API for X, and I believe it was a Python API. And what ended up actually happening is that API ended up pulling in um, what resembled wasn't quite that way, a private repository. Um, and now, just being conscious that I read this article about almost a year ago, so I believe it was actually a public repository for that matter. Sorry, I'm take that a second back. But that also included the license end to end. And you can imagine that those licensing issues like we have in the world of digital art and music. Um, and I don't know if you've seen it or not with AI, but, and this is going reference just quickly. There was a, quite a few songs that were released by like Drake and these other artists that they had no, no, no input in, not even their own voice, but the artificial uh, Gen AI uh, audio LLM that they used, it was really hard to discern reality from um, what do you call it? Something that was made through Gen AI. Anyway, that issue may actually come up with the enterprises. If you pull in something, they're not allowed to through a Gen AI in a sense of, um, due to particular licensing concerns, you may end up causing a bigger headache all the way down. And if you're not working with a private Gen AI LLM, so in the case of like, say for example, Code Whisperer's ability to lock down what it knows down to just a private set of repositories, you might be actually exposing yourself to code scanning. It's a paranoia, I think, that may be relevant. I have yet to see, um, and this is because I've got a very paranoid home setup, right? Like like some other technical people do. I've got a little um, Raspberry Pi that's running uh, Pi-hole, and I monitor the traffic that kind of goes through and block any bad actors, right? I've yet to see any anything particular there, and this is with a conscious mindset, that's basically reporting home every single time I use CodeRispro, which is taking my code. That isn't to say though, that the uh, security contrast amongst us aren't thinking that firsthand. If I'm writing proprietary software that's gonna separate myself from my competition, do I really wanna trust an LLM won't be sending home saying, yep, I've just done this. And I think the future is gonna be a lot of private LLMs. And I think that's where it's gonna really help the enterprise. And that's when enterprise is gonna start adopting it. You may have self-hosted, you may have through organizations because if you imagine in the past we had, if there was Git repositories, it was all self-hosted because the enterprise did not want Big Brother SaaS to be having any sort of ability to scan their repos. Well, in 2023, if you look at it now, most of the world is either on GitHub, GitLab, or Bitbucket, right? And 90% of those are SaaS. I even think Bitbucket no longer provides their own self-hosting services. But anyway, 
it, the same thing that happened with our Git repos will happen with that LLM, except we will have certain, as you said, regulations that will come in. The one that I'm assuming will happen that the government will actually come in and is going not against my initial comment, but I think actually kind of supplementing it in a way, which was that, you know, government won't get involved. Let's shift gears a bit and yeah, continue on talking about the security side. So I feel that, yeah, pretty much I feel, it, I mean, I feel like the, the stuff you said about enterprises being more or less wary of this um, generative AI and a lot of similar things along the lines too, I feel have more or less been seen by a lot of people too. I mean, I remember there was like one case of, I feel like one company that actually had their devs try to troubleshoot some issues in their code and they just put it into ChatGPT. And after that, they just realized like, wow, this was a bad idea. And it became a pretty big thing afterwards. And it blew up into a news story. I, I forgot which enterprise that was, but that was, uh, that was certainly something I think uh, a good lessons learned, I feel for a lot of people in general. And we have the whole story as well right now about many authors actually suing big providers of generative AI too. So I think it's, yeah, it's going to continue becoming a bigger thing, I feel, as we continue forward as well. And it'll certainly, I feel like, be interesting to see like how yeah, different companies and corporations and governments choose to regulate it as well. And as for on the security side as well, do you have any particular more or less best practices you want to suggest too on like how devs can better manage it, you know, on their side too while using these kind of tools as well? You kind of said it yourself the best, right? Don't put in chat GPT. Like you wouldn't pour passwords um, in plain text into your repos. Don't do the same thing when it comes to these chatbots, right? Um, and if you are, if you do plan to use them, sanitize your code before you actually use them inside of a ChatGPT-like client. ChatGPT and all other chatbots, if I were to be a business and putting myself in their shoes, every time someone runs a question and gets an answer, I would look at that and feed that back to my model, which they're most likely doing you do run a risk of by some miracle that your code that you've just put in may end up you being used by somebody else. It's effectively that Picasso model where if you give enough of an LLM and tell it to write Picasso enough, it'll eventually give you what Picasso had, you know, um, created himself in the same as the scenario here. What if by some chance when you go with API keys, create me a, um, API that accepts API keys within the body of the message. And then your API key kind of comes through. Unlikely, but that scenario can and has happened. And why I say can, um, again, Y Combinator, Reddit, if you look hard enough, you'll see that this has actually happened in the past before the guardrails kind of came in. Being conscious of security as well. This is a funny one. And I say funny because it's both haha and both huh, strange funny. And I'll explain to you what I mean. When you observe what the hallucinations of Gen AI in the coding space, you see that it may come up with its own modules as well as its own methods from said modules to try to execute whatever you're asking for. If it doesn't exist, it'll think it exists based upon what it's given because basically it assumes something may exist. Again, it's not a cognitive creature. It has no dissidence of its own to basically go, hmm, let me confirm if this repo or rather library exists. No, no, no. It works in a sense of, 
I assume therefore it is. The issue with that, you actually will have some actors who may say, hmm, judging by my 10th million automated request to ChatGPT, and 10th million obviously being facetious, but trying to paint a picture here, I've seen that these particular libraries or modules have been used over and over again, but they don't exist. They're not an NPM, they're not in PIP, they're not in NuGet, right? And it could be something that looks very realistic. And we've seen this in the past where people have created modules that look, for example, like Botto3, the AWS um, Python library, but they were poorly named, could be like BT3, and people thought, hey, this matches up. Obviously, BT3 is kind of obvious, but still. People are very easily to be malicious and create these modules that these LLMs are spitting out, push them out to a public PIP or a public NPM, and then when they're used, they could either be a crypto miner or they could be a bot, Azure as part of a botnet whenever it's used, or it could even just lock everything up and become a crypto locker virus. And then effectively, then you've just you know lost all your contents locally. It's a bit of weird like cyber espionage in a way, because by something telling you it is right, you are now being impacted through an unknown source. Definitely. It's, I feel GPT has, uh, and a lot of other foundational models in general has always pretty much been a lot, a big source of bias, particularly because at the end of the day, it's certainly something that a lot of people talk about as well. And I feel like it's, it's really more or less like how we, we, for some of this forget how easy it has made for life for us in general, like for, and that, that's a pitfall for a lot of devs as well. They put stuff, they, you know, cause it's easy and yeah, you just like, it turns out code. So what can be easier than that? Basically it's just like tapping your, you know, like fellow dev next to you and just say like, Hey, you know, like, how can I fix this? And instantly getting the response back, which actually completely fixed your code. So I feel like that's like really like what has been creating this particular risk I feel over time too. And, yeah, how it's particularly been going on too. But I think it's pretty interesting as well that you did bring up too on the issue on that it just assumes something is always available. I, I think it's interesting because I feel like some companies have, some some foundational malls have started to try to bridge this particular solution. And I think this is going to be interesting for our listeners as well, but th there have been attempts pretty much to do this. But for example, one of the things that I've actually played around with was uh, chat GPT-4 with Bing, which is, I think they're, yeah, pretty much like GPT's attempt to try to more or less connect GPT-4 to be able to browse Bing as well, uh, and more or less return something based on that. So if it actually feels like it doesn't know, but though it's a bit wonky though, it still usually just assumes that it actually knows something. And sometimes you actually have to instruct it particularly to find stuff. So, but yeah, I think it's an interesting thing, particularly that some are starting to look at that direction as well. And, but that's more or less, I feel, what we currently have for the time right now. But before we leave off, uh, do you have any particular uh, closing remarks for our listeners, Boyan, about particularly, you know, using ChatGPT, oh, sorry, using uh, foundational models and yeah, other related uh, generative AI tools too? If you're in the dev or the DevOps game, use it now, or eventually people will surpass you that do use it. It's scary. You can get a lot done in a short period of time, but don't be afraid to use it. Take it as an advantage, take advantage of it and be part of the change. Don't be a unnecessary blocker. And the reason why I'm saying that very, very straightforward is because 
we have now the ability to learn in a very short period of time. And in our industry, it's almost impossible to be stagnant because always something new will come out. And when you see something becoming as part of the norm, it doesn't take much just to invest five, 10, 20 minutes to just try it out. If I can take take any, um, if I can say anything that really wraps this whole thing up is, if you are listening to this, Code Whisperer doesn't cost you anything. It's free. Try it out, install it, play with it, and go from there. Those are some great mirrors, Boyan. I would like to echo the same thing as well. I feel it's it's very easy to get started on it. A lot of people are pretty much like starting to just trial it out, and I'm pretty sure as well to our listeners here too. If you're interested in it. Yeah, and you know, listening to this podcast, the first place you probably already give generative AI a shot to, maybe more or less trying a, a random ty- Amazon Titan financial model on pretty much on Bedrock, for example, might be something you're trying out or something else. I'm pretty sure as well that you know you're already getting started on it and more or less already in the world of it too. So, yeah, but. I'd like to close up here. Thank you again so much, Boyan, for joining me for our first podcast. And yeah, and look forward to seeing all you listeners as well in the next one too. Thanks for having me and uh, yeah, have a good one.